Välkomna till The Third Story. Welcome to The Third Story. Med Leo Sidran som värde. I'm Leo Sidran. When we talk about the industry of music, we often think of it as a large faceless corporate monster. And that might be true, but it's also true that the industry is run by people. And sometimes a small group of people can have a large impact. That was certainly what happened in the case of Spotify, a company that was started by a small group of ambitious, creative Swedes who went on to totally revolutionize the world of streaming and the way we listen to music. Eventually, Will Page joined the organization as their chief economist. Will went on to write a brilliant book called Tarzan Economics, Eight Principles for Pivoting Through Disruption. The paperback edition of the book was published recently, retitled Pivot, Eight Principles for Transforming Your Business in a Time of Disruption. Will Page is not Swedish, he's Scottish. But in our conversation, he has some ideas about why the Swedes are so entrepreneurial and why they're so creative when it comes to making and promoting popular music. Fortunately for us, most Swedes also speak good English. Otherwise, we'd all probably have to learn how to speak Swedish. I spoke to Will Page in London recently about his extraordinary professional story. He began his career working at the UK Government Economic Service in the rather unsexy income tax department. But his love of music and a chance encounter that he tells us about here led him to become one of the most influential economic thinkers in the music business and one who most people have never heard of. Talking to Will, it's clear that he loves two things, maybe equally, music, especially jazz and jazz-adjacent music, and economics. Third-story.com is the place to go to sign up, subscribe, and listen to the archive. It's hundreds of conversations with members of the creative class and a handful of conversations that relate very nicely to this one, including talks with Imogen Heap, Ari Herstand, Ralph Simon, Benji Rogers, and more. And The Third Story is made in collaboration with WBGO Studios. Visit wbgo.org studios to learn more about all their award-winning content. Then it's patreon.com slash thirdstorypodcast to contribute to the economics of this project. If you like what you're hearing, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. And also, special thanks to Anna Lan, singer, songwriter, educator, and my friend for the Swedish translation and voiceover in this episode. You can hear Anna's music, including the song that you hear right now behind me, which she and I produced together on her album Chocolate and Roses many moons ago, on Spotify or wherever you listen to music. Here's me and Will Page talking it down late last year. First of all, Will Page, I want to talk about you. This is we're here to talk about you, but since you brought up this thing about video and podcasting to begin with, and by the way, I can tell just by speaking to you a little bit that you are filled with these data points about what's happening mm-hmm. in podcasting in all of the platforms in in the business in general. You must be constantly keeping track of all the data and what's trending. It's the wild west, but it's capturing a lot of attention. You know, one way to think about this is If I choose to listen to Leo's podcast instead of Will's song, I'm allocating 40 minutes instead of four. And that's one way of understanding. I'm only going to listen to audio content for 10 hours a week, and four of those 10 hours are going to be podcasts that leaves less for music. Yes. So it's really important, A, that we figure out podcasts, but B, that we figure out how to put music back into podcasts. Mm. That's the next mountain we've got to climb. I often think about that because I'm a, essentially a music podcast and I'm asking people to take yeah. time away from the music to talk <laughs> about the music. 
But when it comes to the difference between video and audio, which is where we're starting here, I have come to feel that radio, and let's say for the sake of this conversation that a podcast is a kind of a modern form of radio, is not television without the pictures, that it has its own set of values, it has its own advantages, and to put video back into the equation is actually in some ways to remove at least what I love about podcast content, which is that it can be consumed, as you point out in your book, while doing other things. You know, you can listen to something and multitask. Mm -hmm. It's not the same with video. Video forces you to commit in a way that audio doesn't. So I'm not sure how I feel about that. So I think there's two things we got to unpack here, and they both sit under the umbrella of nobody knows what's happening to the world of podcasts right now. Yeah. And anybody who says they do is clearly lying. It is the Wild West. But the first thing is to think about what is a podcast. The word podcast merges an iPod with broadcast. Let's stop there for a second. <laughs> the only place you can buy an iPod today is a porn broker. And it's the opposite of a broadcast. It's a narrowcast. We're not broadcasting one-to-many. We're broadcasting one-to-one. So the word podcast in itself creates confusion. And I want to stress here in Western markets like UK or US, but imagine Brazil or Indonesia who probably didn't know what the iPod was. What do they make of this word? And that's not a trivial point. That point really matters. The second issue is you're speaking as a podcast creator. And I've noticed this noise between the creator and the consumer when we're trying to understand what a podcast is. If you ask a creator, is YouTube a podcast platform? They say, no, never. It's Spotify, it's Apple, it's Stitcher FM, and so on. When you survey consumers and say, what's your number one venue for podcasts? They point to YouTube. Mm. Joe Rogan, still, by far and away, by a country mile, the most popular podcast in the country, started off as a YouTube channel. So I get worried when I see divergence between the creator and the consumer as to what a podcast is. And I also hark back to that key point, which is the word podcast is simply not fit for purpose here in October 2022. What you are pointing to is a kind of feeling that was very triggering for me as I spent a little bit of time with your book and that I think is maybe key to understanding how you, you think about these questions, which is that at any moment, those who are creating or participating in, in any part of the sort of cultural landscape become attached to whatever the thing is that they're doing. You know, I'm quite attached to this product that I make, the mm -hmm. way that I make it. I've committed myself to it. It has its boundaries around it. And so I'm kind of digging my heels in and saying, this is what I do and this is not what I do. And I don't want to listen to that. This is my patch. Yes. And what I hear in what you're saying right away is, well, let's just step back for a minute and look at what people want. How do people want to consume this? And what's the best way to reach those people? Because I think what you're talking about is already an attachment to a model that may be changing. Yeah, I think you've got to follow this consumer. You've got to go fishing where the fish are is my favorite expression. And you know, a good example of how the world of media has drawn me away from my comfort zone, away from my patch, is if you think about TikTok, which I'd be quite happy to diminish as some sort of quirky, yes. swipe left, swipe right, you know, addictive Chinese media app. It's not. And I just have to concede this point. It's not. It is now a fundamental part of how music is broken, how jazz is broken, how pop music is broken. And to put some numbers around this, um, recently I was able to stand on stage and announce that Spotify had passed 20 million monthly active users in this country of Great Britain. 20 million, which, by the way, makes Spotify bigger than any radio station or TV show in the country. So new media has overtaken old media. Mm -hmm. 
But then I was allowed to announce that TikTok has reached 15 million. And remember, we're now talking about four or five months ago. What's interesting there is it took 13 years of blood, sweat and tears for Spotify to get to 20. It took less than three years for TikTok to get to 15. And they're still growing. And I can tell you now that I put two jazz bands at the Love Supreme Festival with their TikTok clips. Mm. So... Do I feel comfortable with TikTok? No. Do I use it? No. Would I even download the app? No. But I do know that the order of events has changed. You know, for 70 years, songs broke on radio, sold in shops. I spent a large chunk of my decade at Spotify explaining that songs break on Spotify, then they go to radio. Now, since starting work in the book, that's changed again. Now songs break on TikTok, then they go to Spotify. And what matters most is what happens first. And it's interesting to see how TikTok has taken me out of my comfort zone as well. So I can relate to your dilemma. Yes, thank you. You know, as you talk about how quickly it's changing and that since you wrote your book, Tarzan Economics, so much has changed. And I was thinking about that as I read your book because I read it on paper. I read it in the traditional form. You even make a point of saying in the book, if you're reading this book, then you've chosen to devote your full attention to this book. You can't do anything else while you're reading the book. It's a very kind of old school way of consuming something. Yeah. But I was thinking, because I could see in the book that you had to address COVID, you know, and you do it from page one. Maybe you're a fast writer and maybe you wrote the book in the sort of last year, but I got the sense that you had to, as you were completing the book, figure out, well, what does COVID have to say about this information or how do I integrate the conversation around COVID into the story? And I guess I wonder, as somebody who wrote a book, which is a more traditional form of presenting information, what was it like for you to understand that the information that you're presenting is changing so quickly that by the time the book is printed, some of the information may be obsolete? Um, so I think it was obviously for everybody, the pandemic changed everything we've got no academic textbook on the shelf telling you <laughs> here's how to do an mba in surviving pandemics this mm. is uncharted water for every single person for myself i started a book in september 2019 when the world was normal mm -hmm. based myself in the british library just like being at university again sitting in a library with all those library traits of being irritable by little things and people flirting across the table from me <laughs> and so on quite quite surreal going back to that um then went to london school of economics um, to proceed through the manuscript. And then along came lockdown and was stuck trying to write from home and trying to find my patch in Hampstead Heath where I could think clearly. I dedicated the book to Kentish Town Swimming Pool, which was interesting. I gave all the staff at the swimming pool free Spotify accounts and they had a whiteboard at the end of the pool so they could write down my ideas as I was doing lanes. Mm. It just leads to some weird questions. A common question when you're doing press for the book is, how did you write a book in the swimming pool? Well, I thought about the book in the swimming pool. I wrote it in the library. But you have to adapt to change. And I think what I can say about the book is the eight principles are future-proofed. They don't change because of the pandemic. In fact, they get accentuated because of the pandemic. And I was really keen to write a book with eight strong principles, each standing tall on their own. I don't like books. I don't want to name names, but you can think of them, which have one simple idea dragged out over 250 right. pages. I want to come with eight strong frameworks, concepts, principles that everybody can use, make or buy. Do you do something yourself or do you see controlled intermediary? Find me one person out there today who's not asking make or buy questions on a regular basis. That doesn't change. But I think if you look at what the pandemic did for the book and what it did for all of us, it accelerated change that was already in place. I'll give you a simple example and then I'll give you a more nuanced musical example. 
The simple example is to think about the high street. Here in the UK, our high streets were in trouble before the pandemic. Um, let's imagine that half the population had experimented with online shopping. Once we're into the pandemic, 100% of the population has tried online shopping and the high street's in even more trouble today. There's even more boarded up shops than there were pre-pandemic. It's accelerated the change. But then when you think about music, what I think was fascinating there was just how live streaming took off. And I was very fortunate to work with the company Twitch, a piece of work which is available for your listeners to check out, twitchrockonomics.com, where I was able to explain the economics of live streaming. And Hmm. if I go deep for a second here, you know, what I love about music is how it responds to suppression. And we go back to our passion of jazz. Mm -hmm. We go back to the 1870s, 1880s, Kansas City, where a bunch of Creole, middle-class, classically trained musicians suddenly found themselves being forced into the African-American community overnight. Through that suppression of classical music, ragtime and blues came jazz. We suppress music during a pandemic and we see this explosion in live streaming. It's a different chapter in life, but it's a similar story of responding to suppression. Mm. We couldn't get on the road, so we took it on the shows. And I, I got to work with people like Billie Eilish on her live streaming concert in the deepest months of the lockdown. And to work on that and to see how live streaming was innovating, it just made me think of one, maybe wrapping up with this one point here, which is all the the advancements we've seen with live streaming, you know, being able to see what cities respond to you as opposed to cities that you wouldn't have toured to with trucks and roadies and all that kit. All these advancements that we've seen with live streaming, they're not going to go away when we get back to normal. Mm. So the question that we now have to wrestle with, the Tarzan economics question is, how do they coexist? Yes. So maybe to put a a pin on it, I remember saying to Billie Eilish's team, we could be looking at 5 million people with you backstage before 50,000 people see you on stage. Mm -hmm. That could be the new normal going forward. Is there any value, is there any use through the Tarzan economic lens of lamenting the loss of what came before, the high street, the four and a half minute pop song? I don't know, the scarcity of buying a CD and knowing that you've bought something that is belongs to you. I mean, I appreciate the embrace of the new and at least the acknowledgement that you cannot stop the onrush of that river. But do we allow ourselves through this lens to take a moment and just lament the loss of what was before? I think I know where you're, you're digging, and I've been digging in a similar patch, but we do need to press pause here on nostalgia. Um, <laughs> nostalgia can be a diversion to where we need to go, and if we think for a minute about what's happened with music as a microcosm for so much else in life, not only did we see streaming kind of play itself out as a stay-at-home stock, streaming volumes were up, streaming revenues were up, we've just seen the American music industry is growing even faster again, And so we have this incredible recovery in the music industry, but the second biggest line item in the United States and the UK today is vinyl. Mm. The second biggest line item in our business is a format that was supposed to be dead back in the 90s. And I just want to pick apart some of the reasons why. I mean, the first one, I think, is not economics, it's cultural. I think people like the thrill of a bargain, but they also like the thrill of a luxury, and it's the same people that are paying nine ninety nine a month to access a hundred million songs on Apple Music, are the same people who are paying twenty four ninety nine to buy a vinyl with postage and packaging thrown in. Second point, and <laughs> I wanted this this is going to freak some of your listeners out, is from the survey evidence I've seen, and this is a pretty consistent figure. of the vinyl buyers in this country do not own a record player, Mm -hmm. which makes you wonder what on earth is going on. 
what I think is going on is vinyls become merchandise. Mm-hmm. I love that album so much on Spotify, I need the vinyl record on my wall. In fact, there's vinyl framing companies that are making so much money they can throw the record in for free. We're in a weird world there as well. But I think thirdly, if we get ourselves out of our comfort zone of music, we can see this happening elsewhere. We can see this bifurcation of markets happening in talent. We can see it happening in travel. We can see it happening in fashion just very quickly. There's an incredible Chinese fast fashion app called Shine or Sheen. Yes, my daughter loves it. Okay. Most people with daughters, when you say this company, yeah. just freak out and yeah. check their bank balance yes. before resuming the conversation. So if you want to phone, yeah. open up your banking app and just check that balance. Um, but yeah, th- this app is phenomenal. They're doing 10,000 line items a day. Their speed from design to to delivery is less than a month. They're leaving companies like Zara for dust. But what's interesting there is popping up across the southern states, the United States of America and in Mexico, are physical sheen shops because people want to buy fashion with a touchy-feely concept. So the way I kind of eat into this dilemma of where this whole thing is going to end up is, is, is in a very simple sentence, which is the internet can scale just about everything. We know that. People in the valley are doing that every hour of every day that we know. But one thing it can't scale is intimacy. And that's an interesting thing to kind of work through because in our world of jazz, it doesn't work well. And you can't do big box retailing tactics with jazz. You can't put it in an American football stadium and hope it's going to resonate. Our form of music is an intimate one. It works in intimate settings. So it's interesting to wrestle with this fact that the Internet's done so much for media, for culture, for art, but it can't scale intimacy. And some of those genres don't work unless they're in an intimate setting. Yes, I love that. I mean, I think that that phrase is so beautiful. You can't scale intimacy. To your point about vinyl, I personally played a gig last night in Paris and sold a handful of CDs, not many. And I asked the people that bought the CDs if they can play the CDs. You just have to explain what, what's a CD again, please? Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've got CDs sitting around and I'm selling them. And I asked the people, will you play this? Mm-hmm. And a few people said no. <laughs> And a couple people said to me, no, and I already have one of your CDs. <laughs> and they really bought it for the opportunity, I think, to support the band yeah. and support me and to it's have me sign it. Yeah, But it, it was not purchased. It didn't seem to be used for its original intent, which is to be listened to. <laughs> I, I once had this idea, which is the growth of CD and vinyl today is the fact that you can't roll up a cigarette. You know those types of cigarettes you roll up? You can't roll them up in an MP3 file. <laughs> so maybe you should ask that question That's for your right. CD buyers after the concert. That's right. What do you plan on doing on this? <laughs> so let's talk about your journey, though, a little bit, because mm-hmm. I find it to be really interesting. You talk about it in the book a bit, but if you wouldn't mind just giving me this sort of thumbnail sketch of how you ended up as the expert that you are today in, in this space and how you ended up spending all that time sure. so at if I, Spotify. If I hop, skip, and jump to the conclusion, the final words of the book, which say, don't wait for your job description, yes. create your job description, I think that's a great place to start because yeah. I have two passions. One's economics. My dad taught me how to teach economics when I was 11 years old. He taught me to focus on audiences who didn't think they could understand economics didn't want to understand economics, but have to understand economics. And as an 11-year-old kid, I've held that close to my heart ever since. Just, if I've got a way of understanding it and translating it, then I'm doing something good. And the other passion was music. You know, ever since discovering Miles Davis and Chick Corea playing Miss Mabry on the album Feliz de Kilimanjaro, 
that brought me into jazz, you know, from writing from Straight No Chaser, booking for the North Sea Jazz Festival, you know, trying to knock on every door possible to merge these two passions. Would this industry called music employ this profession called economics? And the answer was a flat no. Every door I knocked on said no. At that time, we were talking here about the early 2000s, the music industry was falling off a cliff. Napster entered the American culture in 1999. In Europe, we had a site called Winamp, which came from Sweden, interestingly. Then we had Kazaa, Utorrent, the Pirate Bay, which all came from Sweden as well. And yeah, it was fun times for a consumer because every song in the world was there available for free. It was not fun times for the music industry. And I can remember bands coming to North Sea Jazz saying, we used to sell 30,000 CDs, those things that you cited earlier on. Now we're selling 3,000. We can't make the numbers work anymore. And that's where I felt this urgency to say, I don't know if I'm the right person, but this industry needs economics, and I want to be the first one to get it. What was economics to the music business at the time? Who was thinking about economics in the labels and the, you know, in the establishment at the time? Well, <laughs> the best way to capture the economics of the business at the time is... And this is a true story. Record labels would sell CDs to retailers by the weight of pallet. Mm. <laughs> I mean, how much data science is involved in weighing a pallet of CDs? So I would literally, as a record label, come up to you and say, I got a pallet of CDs here. You wouldn't say to me what's on that pallet mm-hmm. or what's inside those boxes. Your first question was, how much does it weigh? Mm-hmm. About 30 kilos. I'll <laughs> give you this much. <laughs> and uh, it's Shania Twain, it's Robson Jerome, yeah. it's all going to sell. So that was the kind of economic grounding of the business back then. Then they got caught out. And I was seeing them make mistakes after mistakes after mistakes, suing the consumer for file sharing. Yes. What a great publicity stunt to promote the fact that these websites where you can get free music. You know, it was just... Sure. Digging your own grave faster and deeper than needed be otherwise. Uh, the creativity in the business was a much more interpersonal creativity where you could fudge numbers. I mean, you make a point of reminding us in the book that you could be certified gold based on the number of albums that shipped, not based on what sold. Yep. But then you could leverage the gold status to sell more records or to get it played on the radio or to convince the gatekeepers that you had a hit on your hands. Yeah, I, I quote my aunt Doreen Loder, um, who ran Enzyme Records with Nigel Grange for the best part of two decades. When she had this expression, she said to me, Billy, this business is so bent it's straight. And mm-hmm. I thought that's a great way to summarize some of the shenanigans that were going on in the industry at the time. The idea of, like, I can ship a million records and receive platinum status. And if half a million, that is gold, comes back to the factory gate, it's not my problem. That captures maybe the egotistical driving force behind the business at the time. But they got caught. They got complacent. They got lazy. And uh, when piracy came along, it upended it. Now, if we then just whistle-stop away through the business Mm -hmm. and get to what Spotify was doing, what I think is really interesting for your listeners, and I'm conscious that jazz and streaming has an uncomfortable relationship and we can get into that and I can give your audience some guidance about how we can get out of that dilemma too but what I think is really interesting here is what the punter is doing today going to the internet and accessing all the world's music and it feels like free because you pay this monthly fee is completely identical to what that punter did in 1999 when he discovered Napster so you can bring a horse to water and demand those kids buy CDs and downloads again, or you can bring water to the horse and say, let's bring the industry to where the consumer is and do what they were doing all the time, but just put a license around it. And 
If I can quickly plug on Netflix, we have the Spotify story drama that really goes to the heart of those early years, 2006 to 2009, when Daniel Ek had this vision, which simply said, if you build something that's better than stealing, the people will come. They're not stealing because they hate you or they want to stick it to the man. They're stealing because it's more convenient. If you make legal streaming even more convenient, they will come over. Mm. And we're now in an industry now, Leo. We're in an industry with half a billion people up voluntary paying for music. It's voluntary to pay. You could stop paying for music today and consume music for the rest of your life quite happily. FM radio, BBC, whatever. Half a billion people now are paying for music. Mm-hmm. When I was looking at this business, nobody was paying for music. That's right. So let's spend a minute on how you invented this job for yourself. You knocked on a lot of doors at the sort of crucial transition point in the early 2000s. How did you get connected eventually with Spotify? And what was the business like when you first entered? The way that I got into the business after, I don't know, 20, 25 rejections all comes down to a man called Adam Singer, who was the chief executive of the Performing Rights Society, which for the American audience is ASCAP or BMI over in the States. And I literally, I'll keep this very concise and precise, working as a government economist in Scotland, working on local income tax is about as boring and as painful as going to the dentist and getting root canal treatment. It wasn't a sexy job that I had back home at the time. And I got on a bus and I picked up a newspaper on the bus. And in this newspaper, the Financial Times had this article saying digital ants wreck the music industry's picnic. And that was exactly what I was getting at. Read the article, looked at who wrote it, Adam Singer, CEO of the PR, CEO wrote this article. Most CEOs are behaving like ostriches and ignoring the, the, the inconvenient truths that are around them. This guy was tackling it. My dad raised me never to be shy approaching people. He said, the worst I can tell you to do is to back off or words to that effect. And he said to me, well, write him a letter. So I wrote him a letter correcting him on some of the points in his essay. And within 48 hours, he called me back, acknowledging some of my corrections and brought me down to London. And it gives me goosebumps saying this to you now, but had I not picked up that newspaper Mm -hmm. on that bus, had I not wrote to the CEO of the PRS, Mm -hmm. had I not taken up his invite to come to London, I would not be where I am. Mm -hmm. Now, the interview, if I can just give you one example of the interview, he said to me, Will, how would you price a music catalogue? I said to myself, not verbally, I haven't got a Scooby-Doo clue Mm -hmm. how to price a music catalog. But as an economist, you have tools to which you can construct answers. So I can't just duck the question. I have to give him an answer. I said, I would design an auction, Adam. He said, that's interesting. Tell me about an auction design. I said, well, you can have ascending auctions, which go up in price. You can have descending auctions. If you look at how you sell fish in Israel or flowers in Amsterdam, you start at the top and you work down. Hmm. First one in gets the first one out. Or you could have a Vickery auction, a second price seal bid auction, which is how you sell adverts in Google. There's all these advancements in auction design which essentially discover price. And I think you could design an auction to discover the price of a music catalogue. And he paused for a minute. He said, in 20 years, I've not heard anyone talk like that. We just simply use net publisher share times 8 or times 10 or times 12. Mm -hmm. We don't do auctions for catalogs. And the whole interview is like that. Like, how would you introduce economics to a business that's never thought about economics? Because the business was developed by... Lawyers. Lawyers is a lawyer-driven business with black and white and no room for gray. You know, bean counters who don't look at the gaps between the beans. Hmm. And that's what economics brought to the table. Roll forward a couple of years, I'd some big breaks at the PRS. I got to work with Radiohead on the In Rainbows project. That was the voluntary tip jar for their album, Mm -hmm. uh, which was a huge success. 
Got to work on Saving BBC Six Music, which happy to listen to today as well. Got to debunk the long tail theory. So I was making a good name for myself as an economist, doing work that hadn't been done before. And then um, got to meet Daniel Ek and understand the plans for Spotify and was basically working with the PRS to understand how we're going to license this thing that's coming down the pipe. On the horizons, this access model, we know it's a solution. We're a million miles from getting there. God knows how the board is going to approve a deal for it, but we need to do a lot of groundwork to prepare it for licensing. Had he launched in Sweden at that point? Was it operative in Sweden? So he had got it launched. Like we go through the dates here because they're quite important. By the end of 2008, he was officially alive in Sweden and Norway. And then by early 2009, we got the ticket to ride here in the UK. There was no Spotify app at that point that hadn't been approved by Apple. That's a story for the Netflix drama. <laughs> I can go into that if you want. But the early days, that was it. And the, the proposition was exactly as it is today. Free with ads online, paid, no ads offline. That crystal clear proposition of here's what you get for a standard class train ticket. Here's what you get for a first class train ticket has produced where we at now, almost 200 million people paying for Spotify around the world. Mm -hmm. So come the Summer Olympics 2012, I was working so heavily with Spotify, the decision was made, now it's time to jump ship and go full time with them. And that's where you know economics came to life. Got working it. with every single part of that company, from the HR induction program, right the way up to the CFO for the direct listing in April 2018. You name one part of the org chart, you made sure economics percolated through to it. So just to recap, you were kind of a local functionary, I guess, I don't know what you would call it in Scotland, you were doing income tax, is that what it was? At that time, I was doing local income tax, but I do have one claim to fame, which is I'm the only government economist to have done an impact study into lap dancing clubs. All right, so you were finding ways to be creative. Yeah. And have you read The Economist last week? There was this article saying that Scotland's finally closed lap dancing clubs. My analysis, uh, I did a lot of field work, a lot of focus groups, um, with dancers, but my analysis said they should be kept open. So mm. all that work's gone to waste eventually, but yeah. Gone below the waste. <laughs> I mean, it really is a pretty stunning story. You had this passion for music and you had this natural creativity and this natural inquisitiveness about things beyond the work that was in front of you. I mean, it sounds like you were perfectly positioned to do this work, even though there really wasn't an obvious opportunity unless you made it for yourself. Mm -hmm. You knew that lawyers left to their own devices were just going to dig this business into a grave. And that's not me bashing the legal profession. Yeah. They just couldn't see what everyone else could see. And what everyone else could see, they couldn't convey. What was needed was economics to structure that language to say, no, the reason why all these people are stealing music has got nothing to do with the law. It's got everything to do with convenience. Yeah. Build something that's more convenient than stealing and watch them come and pay for that instead. And that's proven to be correct. But now we get back into the space that we were starting to explore earlier, which is that so interestingly, the product itself begins to change over time because of the nature of the technology. So one thing, for example, is songs are getting shorter. We need to capture people more quickly. I think it's absolutely appropriate to remember that a pop song was three minutes long for technological reasons initially the earth was not created with the three and a half minute pop song written that's a function of technology vinyl had its own limitations radio had its own limitations even the way records were mixed were a product of what the sound systems could handle what the needle on a record could handle all that stuff so technology has been in conversation with popular music for a long time and yet i find myself looking at some of the data points that you bring up for example Songs are getting shorter and shorter and shorter, maybe as a result of trying to make sure that people stay 
and listen for the first 30 seconds. So yeah. you got to grab people and they can't skip. The tail that wags the dog. Yes. The rules of streaming, the economic rules of yeah. streaming, are definitely affecting the craft of songwriting. Yes. And those two points you alluded to, to kind of flesh them out for your audience here, Yes. is yes, the songs are getting shorter. If you... If you think about the example of U2, where the streets have no name, my yes. favorite U2 anthem, a song that made many Irish Americans have a sense of identity in place. That song takes two minutes and eight seconds before you hear Bono's voice. Yes. Now, if you go to Little Nas X, All Town Road, the biggest hit in an era of streaming, that song had faded out by two minutes and eight seconds. Mm. Putting the chorus at the front is something that we spotted with Avicii way back in 2012. A lot of the Swedish songwriters were doing this quite early on. And that makes sense, too, because if you only get paid when you've been played for 30 uninterrupted seconds, it makes absolute sense to shove the chorus right up there to hook you in. I can't afford you, Leo, to skip my song. So I'm going to shove the chorus up there to get you in. And if you skip after 31 seconds, farewell. But I've checked out. I've taken my chips to the casino and I've cashed out. On top of just the fact that you only get paid when you've been played for 30 seconds, you don't get paid a penny more for lasting a second more. And this is where you see the rules of the game affect songwriting because a canny, rational songwriter should write shorter songs with a chorus at the front. If you look at the Drake album, there's a Drake album which had 28 songs, some lasting 42 seconds. Full respect to Drake, but can anyone spot what he's doing there? Hmm. He's gaming the system. Now, I want to give you a historical example to give you a bit of comfort with this point, and then I want to give you a modern example to make you shit-scared worried about this point. Mm -hmm. To comfort you... The tail wagging the dog, the rules of streaming affecting the craft of songwriting, we've been here before, we've been here again. If we go back to the late 50s and the early 60s, there was wonderful people called the Mafia. Hmm. They ran the jukeboxes across America. They demanded every song on the jukebox last just two minutes and 30 seconds, hence Motown hits. And why? Because shorter songs extracted more value from a jukebox. Let's we have to put us. another dime in to play another song. And what is a jukebox? It's a way for paying for on-demand music. What's Spotify? It's a way to pay for on-demand music. So we've been here before and we'll be here again. But since writing the book, of course, along came TikTok, which took a three-minute hit to 30 seconds. So let me give you a plausible scenario to show you how mm -hmm. absurd this has become. You and your audience may have seen this famous scene on TikTok, which involves a guy hanging off the back of a truck with a skateboard, drinking a bottle of soda, which might have been product placement after all. And he's singing Dreams by Fleetwood Mac, yes. a song written in 1981, released by the band. Big hit. Big, big hit. The clip lasts 34 seconds. As of March, as exclusive for your audience, I can tell you this, that clip had had 98.7 million views. That's a lot of views. It's not billions of views, but it's a lot of views. What's staggering is it's had 875,000 people impersonate a guy hanging off the back of a truck, drinking a bottle of soda and singing dreams, put up on TikTok. That's the population of Edinburgh and Glasgow combined. Mm. That's the bit that freaks me out. So just to wrap this up for you hmm. so we can unravel our heads even more, it is plausible that Wembley Stadium could be sold out with Fleetwood Mac coming back on the road to a bunch of Gen Z millennials who have only consumed 34 seconds of their repertoire. <laughs> Dad, what's this? It's a verse. You should listen, son. There's going to be more of them coming along soon. I really do think 
we're in that situation where you could be selling out stadiums with Fleetwood Mac performing to people who have only consumed 34 seconds of their content. I think that that's good news for Fleetwood Mac, who actually write songs that are longer than 34 seconds and have a lifetime of career behind them. But it's bad news for intimacy. It's bad news for intimacy, and I don't know what it means for artists in the future. Because I I don't know what the artists who are developing in this environment... I mean, is there a long-term career? Is there a career artist who's born out of the TikTok experience? I think there there are examples of career artists, but there are clouds over their prospects because we're now in this culture, if you're not always on, then mm-hmm. you're on vacation. Yes. So in the past, if my favorite artist was in the studio for two years, I had a sense of anticipation. Like, yes. what are they preparing yeah. for me? I can't wait for them to come back out and deliver those goods, yeah. those crafted goods they spent two years recording. Now I think they're on holiday. Yeah. The, the, the fickle nature of audience today, we don't have to... We used to say the album was the climax. Now it's yeah. a conclusion. Yes. That's all that's coming. So the artists that can make TikTok work are often what I would call always-on artists. But then... Again, we have to park the economics and think about mental health here. I think there's challenges with being always on. And I think this, for our shared passion of ours, jazz, this is a square peg in a round hole. This this doesn't work for jazz. Jazz doesn't work to this model. It leaves some genres on the hard shoulder. And I get genuinely worried about that. Um, If you think about the headcount of these streaming services, I think Spotify now employs 7,000. Yeah. I'm sure YouTube Music's got a similar number. Amazon, it'll be up there. Apple, maybe not quite so much. You know how many people are employed to curate jazz and classical? Three. Mm. That's it. Let's look at people that were hired to do podcasts in their hundreds. I haven't seen anyone at Spotify curating jazz. And the only one woman based here in London is curating classical. That's it. Now, I'll give credit where credit's due. Apple Music bought Symphonic. That's a sign of intent. It was not a cheap acquisition. That's a clear sign of intent of we're going to get classical right. It's going to take time, but we're going to get classical right. That's one of those tankers has turned and it now seems to be moving in the right direction. Yes. But jazz, how on earth can a genre as important as jazz just get forgotten about by all these streaming platforms, which employ thousands of people and have yeah. multi-million, billion-dollar valuations? I just do not understand that. It's a point that really irritates me. Jazz has a tradition of being uneconomic, hence the joke, what's the best way to make $300? Give a jazz musician $800. That's right. <laughs> or is that other one, what do you call a jazz musician who split up with his girlfriend? Homeless. So we have a problem with the economics yes. of our genre, but that doesn't in any way accommodate or yeah. make it rational that all of these streaming platforms yes. could have no curation let's just go back to basics here jazz needs a foundation to which it can grow yes and in record shops you had a jazz category in most radio stations you had jazz shows and sometimes you have jazz specialist stations like your own yeah we have streaming is where the crowds are being drawn and there's nothing there dedicated to working out how to champion jazz the same way that hip-hop has been championed yeah. or pop has been championed and the gap between being that corner of the record shop dedicated to a profile, still in the same shop, still got labels, yes. still got the same counter, and where we are on streaming with 100 million songs and you're trying to stand above that crowd. Let me say this. The room's getting increasingly crowded. Yes. Increasingly crowded. 65,000 songs onboarded Spotify today. That's the same amount of music that was released in 1984. I don't want to go Orwellian on you here. 65,000 songs, 6,000 albums were released in 1984. 65,000 songs today are getting onboarded. The room is getting crazy crowded. 
and it's getting harder and harder and harder to speak at the people at the back. Yes. And that's where the jazz, the classical, the world music seems to find itself again. How do we get those people moving towards the front? Yeah. It's a challenge going forward. It's a big question. There's a cost to having too much choice. So this is where this is really interesting. Again, this is how the the technology we talk about the tail wagging the dog, right? You solved a problem that the music business establishment was facing. Subsequently, what has happened is that the barrier to entry into the music business is lower and lower. Now more and more people can get involved. That's another sort of byproduct of the technology, right? We can all make a record and put it up on Spotify tomorrow. We can all make a podcast and put it up on Spotify, which when you started was sort of true, but it's it's definitely more true now. So there's all this noise. You know, I don't necessarily know that that was part of the problem that you were looking to solve. I mean, that may have been, there may have been other people at, at Spotify and, and these other services that were thinking in those terms as well, that, okay, we're going to remove some of the gatekeepers or some of the challenges that, that are keeping maybe the great undiscovered artists all over the world from being able to have their music heard because now they can, mm-hmm. they have a direct line to the distribution. But here's a, here's a byproduct that's a paradox. It's, it's a little bit of a, it's not all good, it's not all bad, but ultimately what it leads to is an impossible amount of content for anybody to make any sense out of. One dollar in every ten leaving Spotify's factory gate today is going to DIY artists. Yes. So a tenth of the recorded music industry is going to people who don't have record labels. And the biggest one by a margin is a company called DistroKid. Mm-hmm. Uh, DistroKid employs less than 80 people, including the cleaners, and was responsible for one-third of all new music released on planet earth last year a third of all repertoire came from this one platform called DistroKid. they are putting up thirty thousand songs a day on streaming services now we use the term boys in bedrooms i know that's not perhaps the right way to frame it Mm -hmm. but if we just hold that for a second a lot of these boys and girls in bedrooms making beats and just putting them up in DistroKid, they have the simplest contract in the world which says for a 20 dollar fixed fee you retain 100 percent of your intellectual property and you see 100 percent of your revenues and they're sticking content on all the time. I was on the walking in Clapham Common with a friend of mine who's putting music up on DistroKid. He said, how's it going? He said, I'm so busy putting music up on DistroKid, I haven't been able to join the PRS. Mm. That's symbolic. I'm so busy supplying new music to Spotify, I haven't been bothered to register the copyright in that new music. Mm-hmm. But if we just do a quick bit of maths here. If there's like 30,000 songs a day coming from DIY platforms, making a pretense of the business, with all those boys and girls in bedrooms making beats were to listen to their own songs 10 times a day for a month, we're talking about a huge amount of volume and a huge amount of value. And I don't want to discriminate and I don't want to in any way make a derogatory remark around the quality of their music. Mm-hmm. But this is a big wedge of the business, which could be distortionary. I don't know whether I should worry about this or simply say, lazy fair, it's the market, just leave it to the market. Yes. But I have got one observation from podcasts, which is when I say two new podcast shows every minute going onto Spotify, Apple, Stitcher FM, and so on. The question I ask is, me and you having a conversation and shoving up on Anchor as a podcast, how many of those podcasts have the podcasters bothered to listen back to their own content? Mm. And if they haven't, is that media? Or is that just a recording of a conversation and shoved on a platform? I'm thinking about that as a kind of dividing line between what is and what isn't content. Mm. If I have a conversation with you and I listen to your podcast, it's professionally edited, you take a lot of time, all that effort, that's content for a purpose. But if me and you have a chat on our smartphones and whack it up on Anchor onto a platform, 
and we don't, haven't even bothered to listen to it, I'm not sure that qualifies as content. And I think a similar parable could apply to music too. Hmm. We have to kind of draw the line here between, you know, the, the floodgates are open, but yes. not all of this stuff coming in should qualify the same way as somebody busting their balls in the studio for two years, crafting their art, compared to a kid in a bedroom sticking a beat up in distro kid. Mm-hmm. It's a thorny topic. It's a controversial topic. It's a bit taboo, but we we can't ignore it with the scale of choice that the consumer is having to wade through today. You talked about the Drake record and how kind of overt the play was to put 20 plus songs that were 40 seconds long. There's worse examples than that. Well, my friends from the Wolfpack made a record. <laughs> oh, I have yeah. to I have to ask you about Here it, it because well, only because I know them and I've explored this with Jack Stratton who did it and and it was a clever little conceit you know they put out a silent record and encouraged their fans to stream it nonstop so they could generate some income and take themselves on the road that was the conceit of their play yeah the the, the silent record and there's more I mean okay Wolfpack your audience will be aware of but I think we can bring it back to a more sort of sensitive debate here which is if you think about sleep music playlists yeah quick joke you know we listen to streaming services on average about 10 hours a week sleep music playlists get a good eight hours every night Mm -hmm. boom um (laughs) but they do now should eight hours of the clock be pulled up for music that sent you to sleep one could argue that's a disgrace you won't even awake when you're listening to it yeah the counter argument is to say music for a purpose what price a good night's sleep Mm. that's an interesting area focus music playlists which i use when i was writing my book Mm -hmm. we're taking up 10 hours of every day again you know it's a focus playlist it's just production music it's it's a junk bond market that's not Mm -hmm. a new ezra collective record that's junk music yes hold on it helped me focus and write my book there's a value to that what's behind all of this debate and it's a real rabbit hole but i think for your audience it'll be illuminating is how you distribute music's value so currently we have a model called Pro Rata, which is super simple. All the consumption data in this country for this time period is lumped together. And all the cash for this country for this time period is lumped together. And you divide one by the other, which simply says, if you get 1% of all the streams in Britain for the month of October, you're going to see 1% of all the cash. All streams are worth the same. Easy. Anomaly. It means some of your subscription is going to artists you never listen to. Sure. Why? Because Leo's heavy listening, because obviously you're up all night on MDMA partying, <laughs> is being subsidized by my light listening because I only get like half an hour a week. Yeah. So some of my money is paying for your consumption. Yeah. The alternative to this pro rata model is called user-centric. And we are now a service called SoundCloud doing fan-powered royalties, essentially the user-centric model. And I'm going to use the term ring fence here. User-centric says, I'm going to take... Leo's 9.99 and ring fence it to just his music. And I'm going to take Will's 9.99 and ring fence it to just Will's music. So it almost becomes like a fan club model. Mm-hmm. Your private bank account for your private music consumption. And I think that debate is really going to be the big one for the next two to three years. But if I could quickly offer your audience a, a very simple insight in terms of that's the black or white. Do we have pro rata pooling the cash? Do we have user-centric ring fencing cash? It's interesting to note that since the 1960s, when the BBC has paid the PRS for the songwriters and the PPL for the artists, it's been on a pro rata model. If you get played, you get paid. Yeah. Duration-based. So collecting studies don't employ data engineers. They should, but they clearly don't. But they still have duration in their formula for allocating the value of music. So these nuances are fascinating yes. for your audience to learn about, which is... Since 1936, when ASCAP got founded, they've never treated all music the same value. 
in 2022, despite all the data science and engineering and software developing, streaming services treat all songs the same. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say this on an American-based podcast, but it's like, how do you introduce capitalism to communism? Yeah, I don't want reds under my bed. McCarthyism. No, I, I'll tell you, 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 said, <laughs> you said something else to, to that end that I thought was really interesting. And I, and I actually, I want to spend a little more time with this while it's on my mind. This thing about Sweden that I, I'm definitely going to take with me into the future when I need to make my argument about why a social safety net and a protection for all of us can lead to innovation. You said that you believe that part of the reason Sweden has been so innovative, that it has encouraged so many entrepreneurs is because they allow people the security to be able to leave a job and start a business, come back a year later if the business hasn't worked, that they kind of have a respect for the entrepreneurial spirit while also supporting, you know, their citizens with health care and, and education and, and a social safety net. Yeah, there's uh, so many types of leave from your job in Sweden. It's, it makes you wonder whether you do your job. But yeah. There's maternity leave, which I didn't qualify for. There's yeah. paternity leave, which I missed out by two months. Mm-hmm. We had our second child just a little bit too early before yeah. they introduced a the policy. There's educational leave where you can say, I want to study a course for six months, and you have to hold that job for that person to come back to. And there's even startup leave. So you can go and try and start up. If it fails, you can come back to your job. There is safety nets everywhere in Sweden. Now, if we go to America... The thinking there, often they quote the Scottish economist Adam Smith and the invisible hand of the market, which can I just say, given the Americans that listen to your podcast, Adam Smith gave the world hundreds of thousands of words. He said invisible hand three times. Mm. And on two of the occasions, it was to warn against free market capitalism. Your governments over the years seem to have adopted those two words and made it, you know, I'm not saying spreading misinformation, but took it out of its original context. But the point being that the American model is if you take away the safety net from society, you make people more entrepreneurial, more risk-taking, less lazy, and more get-up-and-go. That's the belief of removing the safety net increases entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah. If I look at Sweden, I see no end of entrepreneurial activity yeah. and a huge safety net. And I just wonder, correlation, causation, I've got an A-B test here saying that model of America, that theory of why that model works doesn't actually hold when you look across at what's happening in Sweden, what you see happening in Norway, what you see happening in Estonia, uh, countries with strong social safety nets and booming entrepreneurial spirit. So I think it's a, an interesting A-B test to, to challenge the American orthodoxy view about how markets work. Yes. For those of us who were seduced by at least socialism and try to keep some of that in our hearts today as we become adults, because I think there's so many typical American kids that go to college and they become sort of radicalized and then they get to work and they become middle class and slowly they kind of lose some of that, you know, that optimism, that progressive spirit. It's very encouraging to hear that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's been interesting from a Spotify perspective is we introduced the maternity and paternity leave, the Swedish model, globally in 2016. Everyone thought we were mad to sit on stage in New York and hear male and female employees being told you're going to have an 18-month bank when you have your child, Mm. which is a maximum of 12 for the mother, a minimum of six for the father. Mm. And learning what America did in the field of maternity and paternity leave, (laughs) which is basically nothing. Zero, yeah. I think it worked out as if a woman had her first child. She was basically taking her own personal leave four weeks after having the Mm -hmm. baby or just declining to work. But to say that 
this is your deal now. You're on full pay and you've got an 18-month bank. I mean, people were fainting. But then to see a small Swedish streaming service do that in the United States, and then now it's pretty much de facto the norm with all large companies. I would not like to sort of brag about Spotify's impact there, but there's a certain claim to fame to be saying they got there first and what was the exception has now become the rule. So that's progress. So that's progress, and that is evidence that the culture of one company can impact the culture at large. And I think it may be a little bit of a sloppy transition, but I do want to just speak to you about the sort of... Well, first of all, I'm curious to know if this even resonated for Spotify or if it was just the chamber, echo chamber that I was in. But, you know, last year, after the Joe Rogan experience, and I don't know if you were still at Spotify, but you watched it with curiosity and intent. I wrote about it. What was your thinking around that conversation? I mean, I guess maybe you can sort of review it for us. And in particular, the way the music business and certain artists like Neil Young maybe conflated the question or at least entered into the conversation around Spotify's relationship with Joe Rogan and that whole experience. The Joe Rogan affair, I'm on record in The Economist talking about it, and I also wrote an op-ed in the Financial Times called Everyone's a Winner in the Joe Rogan Affair. And if I can jump to the conclusion of that op-ed, I quoted the, the famous Hollywood executives who said, don't read your PR, weigh it. It's a great expression, which is, if you've got a dud movie that's getting two-star reviews everywhere, don't worry, because you're getting reviewed everywhere. Don't read your reviews, weigh your reviews. Yes. Point being, and there's no such thing as bad PR. Yes. When Taylor Swift took her content off Spotify, way back in, let's see hmm. now, 2014, 2015, um, we never grew faster. Yeah. All of a sudden, the platform was getting quoted in the Wall Street Journal, in the New York Times, not inside pages, front page. Yeah. That bad PR led to acceleration and growth that no marketing budget could have bought as well. I think the same thing happened with Neil Young. Um, some things have to be said about that. Firstly, I've got a 100% track record in this. The episode with Mr. Malone and Joe Rogan interviewed, everybody who said to me they were upset about it has not, has yet to listen to, listen to that episode. I'm really offended by what was said on that podcast. What was said on that podcast? I don't know. Just my neighbor said they were offended. Yeah. Let's ask your neighbor. Were you offended? Absolutely. Have you listened? No. Well, why are you offended? Because the person across the street said they listened to it. Let's ask them. I've yet to find anyone who was offended yes. who has listened to it. Yeah. I listened to it first time around. Were I listened offended? to it again. And it's a brilliant episode. We're talking here about somebody who owns at least part of, and I don't know the legal term here, the patent for the mRNA vaccine. We're talking about somebody who himself was vaccinated. And he doesn't actually say you shouldn't take the vaccine, everyone. He gives a very nuanced example of, you know, where the vaccine might be impactful and where it might not. And I think it's a... Would you not want to listen to somebody who has part ownership in the patent of the mRNA vaccine in the middle of a pandemic? I sure would. And do you believe the science because it's given to you on a plate or do you think it should be challenged? I was brought up on Karl Popper, conjectures and refutations. You say this is a scientific fact. My job is to challenge that and say maybe it's not. Let's have a look at the difference between people who died with COVID and the people who died of COVID. You got run over by a bus yesterday and you had COVID. Mm -hmm. You died with COVID. You're a statistic on the count. That's different from dying of COVID. Mm -hmm. Am I supposed to believe the science with those anomalies? Inquisitive minds should challenge science, 
not just take it for granted. That's when science goes wrong. Science is when you have 19 like eminent professors saying, we think we got the answer here. Mm -hmm. And the 20th comes along and says, no, you haven't. I've mm -hmm. spotted this thing over there. That's how science should work. And I think the Joe Rogan episode was a brilliant conversation about that. And it's very nuanced. It's very detailed, very constructive. It's not his best show, but it's a good show if you listen to it. So my big advice for anyone who was offended by that episode is to listen to it. Now we'll turn to Neil Young. Mm. Uh, Neil Young has a history with Spotify. Um, he once blasted Spotify for saying that the compression of the sound quality yeah. was killing music and threatened. I don't think he carried out the threat to remove his content yeah. from the platform. Um, he didn't know that you could go to your settings and change the sound quality. Small fact, sow a seed, mm -hmm. maybe it'll take root. Mm -hmm. The fact is the default setting is where it is to manage data charges. So there's a technical issue there. And that's a good place mm -hmm. to start with. But if you do press your thumb on a piece of glass within three seconds, you can change that sound quality. Explaining that to a legendary artist, mm -hmm. and trust me, I own all of his records, is a little bit baffling. But still, then you get the fallout. And the fallout is just interesting from the perspective of free speech. Yes. Are you offended by what people said to the point where you don't want them to say it? That's a very dark place to go. Well, I think at the time, and I did not hear the episode, but I think the question still stands, when the distributor is paying a premium for certain content over other content, does it have a different responsibility? In this case, I don't know that it necessarily needed to have any further responsibility because I haven't heard the episode. I can't weigh in on that. But it did raise the question, okay, this is a passive distribution channel for 99% of the content, whatever it is. But then some of this content is earmarked as either Spotify exclusive or Spotify original content, in which case, are you now beholden to some secondary layer of responsibility towards that content. We have to be very careful as we tread here because conflating these subjects is where we yes. create confusion for ourselves. Yes. And I really respect the fact you've already declared you haven't actually listened to the episode. Yes. I don't even know whether you listen to Joe Rogan and how he constructs his show. Yeah. Point being, even going back and saying, actually, I'll just listen tonight and come back into the argument and say, I listened to it back in the day. You need to listen to the show yes. and how he does his show yeah. and why the show is popular to really get a flavor of the episode. And it's not his best episode. It's a good one and yeah. it was timely. But if it is exclusive to Spotify, I don't think you can wash your hands and say, hey, DMCA, Safe Harbor, Mere Conduit, what's on the platform is the creator's business, not the publisher's business. But then I saw Daniel Eck give a speech where, you know, echoing the same words as myself, so what? I'm proud of the show and I'm proud of the episode. They gave a contribution to an ongoing debate where the science was always changing. To me, the question became a larger question that will also impact the musical end of the conversation, which is as Spotify begins to create content, when the distributor becomes the content creator, what are the questions that one asks one thing is to ask the question, is this good for the music? Is it bad for the music? But we're still basically just providing an opportunity for the music to reach the fans. Now, there's a certain aspect of what Spotify is doing, not only Spotify, all the content providers that are saying, no, we we think we have something to offer here also. Yeah. So let's go back to the work that I did on Joe Rogan at the time, which is not just you know the simple takeaway, which is there's no such thing as bad PR. Yeah, I'm sure Neil Young. In fact, I actually calculated for Neil Young's behalf his streaming uptick, which was huge for a couple of weeks, then died way back down again. Yeah. Is he back on or he's still off? 
I don't know because I'm using Apple Music. But the key thing that I was stressing in the Financial Times and The Economist is this. Tech valuations for years have soared on the thesis that there's no marginal cost. You take a hot software company today like Airtable, Excel for people who are scared of Excel. They have gross margins of 18 90%. There's no marginal cost. If this thing scales, it scales to the heavens. And that's why it makes tech so exciting. My counter-argument to that, based off the Joe Rogan affair, based off Facebook's you know recent dilemmas, is that content moderation is the first marginal cost to hit tech. I know one large tech company on the West Coast of the USA, which employs a fair few thousand staff, I want to keep this anonymous, one in four employees are in content moderation. One in four people in a tech company are not adding value, they're just preventing bad things from happening. They're zeros, they're not ones. A quarter of the workforce. Um, there's this joke at Facebook, which is one quarter of the people are working in VR, the other three quarters are working in content moderation. <laughs> it's not that quite that bad, but I'll give you a very quick example. If you go back to a Facebook earnings call, this is a really deep observation to you know discuss capitalism. Mark Zuckerberg announced that he had 30,000 people working on content moderation and the stock price fell. Interesting, right? You say to Wall Street, I take ethics and content moderation seriously and they dumped your stock. I'm not sure whether that would happen this time round. Yes. But I find that interesting, which is these tech companies have to invest in content moderation and the market doesn't like it. Yes. Because it is a transactional cost, it's a deadweight cost, it's not a revenue producing cost. Going back to podcasts, one of the biggest challenges with and this brings us back to the Joe Rogan episode, uh, the biggest challenges with content moderation in podcasts is you need context. And I don't think AI can solve it. We could be discussing something sensitive and saying a few words which could trigger AI to say, take that podcast down and bury it. Lap dances in Aberdeen. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but if we go to that subject, you need to get to the 45th minute of the podcast to realize the overall context of what we were discussing was the protection of women in the workplace, yeah. not lap dancers in Aberdeen, which, by the way, was yeah. what my economic impact study was actually all about, yes. which is if we regulate this market, we can protect the workers in this market. If yes. we ban it, it goes underground. Perfect example. Why do we always end up talking about lap dancers? Um, we do. Um, but that's a perfect example of how do you regulate podcasts where the entire episode needs to be heard yes. by humans, and there's two new podcasts every minute, by humans to get context to work out what is and isn't an issue for a content moderator. Yes. Finally, I think what that conversation did, though, is ignite some feelings that are more emotional among other musicians. Because what I saw happen in my just my little social media bubble is suddenly here are all these independent artists who read Neil Young's statement and, you know, read some analysis of Joe Rogan, probably not hearing the episode, and decided that they too wanted to leave Spotify or complain about Spotify or use this as an opportunity to reframe the conversation around their own works, maybe go to Bandcamp exclusively for a while, something like that. I was interviewed a couple times and I got on the phone with a handful of friends who were threatening to leave or did leave. And I said, I don't think we at this stage in our careers can afford to leave this platform. I think we need this platform more than it needs us. We need to be there. I don't think you actually exist if you're not there. Neil Young can afford it, but he also just sold half of his catalog six months before that. And a week after he won up a Spotify, Amazon was very happy to privilege his music. You might say that. I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know that we're able to afford to do that as developing artists. 
or podcast creators. However, it triggered something that was already there, particularly among independent artists who there are certainly many independent artists who will speak highly of the model and say, no, no, if you're if your streaming numbers are good, you'll collect. But there are others who are still kind of, I don't know, attached to this narrative, which may or may not have some validity, that this is not good for us because the pay per stream is very low. You say one in ten dollars goes to an independent artist. That's great. But, you know, what the independent artists say is, but why is nine dollars going to these labels? There's all of this noise in the sort of indie world, I think, that was stirred up during the Rogan affair. Um, I think it was stirred up during the Rogan affair, but at the same time, at least in this country, we had the UK inquiry into streaming economics. Mm -hmm. I think that's what really stirred it up Mm. more than the Joe Rogan affair. Um, So I would definitely want to clarify that the Joe Rogan affair is possibly a little bit of a distraction to much bigger debate about the payouts. Yes. The allocation of value, the ability to make a living from this model. Now, a few things that we got to crack out here. One, a very simple sentence, which I want your whole audience to tattoo on their forehead, because this is really the nub of the challenge, which goes like this. The music industry is making more money. Agree, agree, agree. But we have way more mouths to feed. Repeat. The music industry is making so much more money these days, profitable money, we're taking helicopters to the private jets again, but we have way, way, way more mouths to feed. And you don't need an MA in economics from the University of Edinburgh to do the arithmetic there. If you think about unions, collective wage bargaining organizations, used to never you know, advertise membership. Why? Because too many members of the union, not enough money to go around its membership. That's what's <laughs> happened in our business. We have got shit tons of money coming into the business but then you look at the flood of artists and songwriters that need to get paid off that money, and all of a sudden it looks a little bit thin. Now, my evidence to the UK inquiry, since Spotify launched in the UK in 2009, the population of artists has more than doubled. Yeah, That's great. That should be celebrated. We should be doing cartwheels. The population of songwriters in this country has trebled. That's even better. We love the fact. And I worked on this stat for your show in the United States, you know, Spotify launched in 2011, the growth in songwriters in America since 2011, based on ASCAP and BMI data, is a net addition of 571,000 new songwriters in America have declared themselves to say, I want to be a professional songwriter, I'm going to join ASCAP and mm. BMI and start registering my copyrights. Wow. That's more than the population of Edinburgh, which happens to be the capital of Scotland, which has yet to gain its independence, unlike you Americans. Mm. That's interesting, right? These are great news stories. But you go back to the monetary dilemma of more money, but way more mouths to feed, and you can see why you've got even more people complaining. That's the source of the issue. We had an inquiry in Britain which went on for three years. And I honestly think the oral hearings, the 300-odd written submissions, the debating by parliamentarians, the whole thing was simply about that one simple, succinct sentence. Mm-hmm. The business is making more money, yeah. but we have way more mouths to feed. Solve that sentence. You don't need to spend three years in parliament debating it anymore. That's the issue. Then just to quickly come back on two other points, micro and macro. On the micro side, just on the power stream, I just want to make sure your yeah. audience understands the example I have given managers for 14 years and counting now and it still stands true to this day. And we're going to work with the BBC Radio 2 breakfast show here in the UK, which pays the songwriter, just like ASCAP receives money from radio, but unlike America, also pays the artists. You know that America is in good company. The 
four countries on the planet Earth where FM radio doesn't pay record labels are North Korea, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Zimbabwe, and the United States of America. So you're in good company there. That's why there was so much theft of publishing and the publishing was so valuable <laughs> because that's the only way you got paid. Right. So in the UK, if your song or your father's song was played mm. on the BBC Radio 2 breakfast show, the songwriter would walk away with £90 and the artist would get £60. Add that together, that's £150. The current exchange rate, that's $150. Right. So there's a large chunk of change there for one play of a song. But your song has been played to an audience of 8 million. So what you need to do is take that £150 and divide it by that 8 million to get the value of the per stream, which is 0 point, and count them here, 0004. When you compare that to half a penny per stream on Spotify, wow, Spotify pays more per listener than the per listener of radio for mm -hmm. good reason. Spotify is interactive. You decide when you want to hear it. Radio is passive. You yes. get what you're given. Now, if those 8 million people who generated you £150 in your PPL and PRS statements were then to jump to Spotify on their commute to work and play your song, you get £40,000, not 150. Every time I explain this point, managers let go of my neck, put me down on the floor, buy me a pint and apologise but I'm getting tired of having to explain it in 2022 when I explained it in 2008. Yeah. We need to understand broadcast is one-to-many, streaming is many one-to-ones. Where else can the indie artists do? They're doing great on streaming, but there's so many more. They complain because there's not enough money to feed all those extra mouths. But one thing I also want to touch on with price is you mentioned Bandcamp. What's interesting, given I worked with Radiohead on In Rainbows back in 2007, which was a tip jar model, you volunteer the price. As on Bandcamp, when you go to Bandcamp and you say, name your own price, no minimum, the mean median mode is to go 40% above guidance. So if I got an album out, let's call it $10. Name your own price, no minimum. You offer 14 And they're doing that for Tom York, who's not short of a penny. They're doing that for busted artists who can't afford to tour. Mm -hmm. And I want your audience to appreciate that point. We started this conversation talking about intimacy. I think you can find intimacy on sites like Bandcamp, and it shows when you allow the buyer to set the price as opposed to the seller. In our world, we say $9.99 for 20 years and counting is all I want for you and not a penny more. But in that Bandcamp world, you say, you tell me how much I'm worth. I'll give you some guidance. They say, I'll give you 40% above asking. Well, again, I mean, that speaks to the intimacy of the experience, right? Like if you give a consumer, an opportunity to feel that they're contributing something directly to the art, they value that opportunity. They want to get closer to it. It's the same people that bought my CDs that can't play a CD. Yeah. They want to participate in some way. Yeah, they want to feel like they've contributed to your journey. And yes. I think that's something that, I don't know whether this is the right way to cut into it, yeah. but I often think about, you know, it's a Saturday here in London and I've been doing all my errands in the morning. Yeah. You go to the supermarket but you'll also go to the butchers or the fishmongers for specialist produce. Mm -hmm. but if this bombs, I apologize to all your listeners, but we go to the supermarket like Spotify, but we still have a space to go to the butcher or the fishmonger or the baker to get those specialist items that we want that little bit of TLC on and I'm willing to pay that premium for. And those two businesses coexist. I think what we're seeing with Bandcamp, with vinyl, and all these other ways in which like the NFT business that's coming into music now, the live streaming business, you know, people are looking for ways to find the intimacy again. And that, I don't want jazz to be blinded by that. We need to latch onto that if jazz is going to keep on going. I think that's a wonderful 
place to wrap up. And it speaks to something my father said for years, which was that he wanted to be the gourmet yogurt of the record business. He wanted to be a specialty <laughs> item. He understood that he was a specialty item, and he would relate to that analogy. In a funny way, it closes in a slightly optimistic space for me, which is, yes, there is a way for both models to exist in the same space. The jazz has to find a way to live in the streaming world. And, and I like that you you know, you encourage curation, but also that there are still other places for consumers to get involved and to try to find some kind of intimacy and connection with certain artists, with certain specific artists. And if I could commit the cardinal sin of interviewing the interviewer here and maybe closing with a question for you and your audience, I'm a huge fan of Ken Burns' documentaries. He's done one on the national parks, which is the story of John Muir, come from a town called Dunbar where John Muir was born, so mm. we're really proud of that one. Mm. But the Ken Burns jazz documentary, can you please ask your audience to explain, reach out to me on the website, why did Kansas City, out of 12 hours of documentary, get all of 18 minutes? I'll give you some thoughts on that when we turn the machine off, but <laughs> um, <laughs> where should they contact you directly? Please, will at tarzaneconomics.com. That's the the book website. And just a quick update on the book. Uh, The paperback comes out in January. It's going to be retitled Pivot, whole new cover as well. And um, the website for for people interested in jazz is a great resource there. All my publications are there, including my articles with Straight No Chaser and jazz album reviews over time. So hopefully that resource for students, for professionals alike, will be, be of use to you folks. Will Page, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Klockans lårstig upp och plocka mossa Dagen lång och magen trång och ingen mat i påsa There he was, my friends, Will Page, lover of music and economics. I'll be back again in your headspace before you know it. Until then, I'll talk to you soon. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org slash studios.